Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Cheryl Hogue Smith about teaching at Kingsboro Community College, first year writing classroom practices, teaching basic writing, the importance of reading, and multimodal assignments. Cheryl Hogue Smith is a professor of English and writing across the curriculum co coordinator at Kingsboro Community College of the City University of New York and a past chair of the two-year college English Association. She is a fellow of the National Writing Project and has published articles in TETYC, JBW, JAL, English Journal, JTW, California English, and Midsummer Magazine, and chapters in What is College-Level Writing and the forthcoming Deep Reading, Deep Learning. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. You teach at Kingsboro Community College. Do you mind talking more about what it's like to teach writing at a public community college in Brooklyn, New York? What are some of your goals in teaching first-year writing? Sure. Um, So uh, Kingsboro is actually part of the City University of New York system. It's one of seven community colleges. So it's a little different than... um, than, uh, like a standalone community college that's just affiliated with one university. We do have the same sort of requirements as the other university or the other colleges, but uh, teaching in Brooklyn, we're the only community college in Brooklyn. And someone told me that Brooklyn would be like the fourth or fifth largest city if it were on its own. And we're the only community college in Brooklyn. So it is very diverse, uh, extraordinarily diverse. Um, And uh, 71% uh, earn lower than $30,000. Um, 49% are first generation, 89% live with their family. Um, and most of my students for a first year comp are entering freshmen. I teach all of my comp class, my first year comp classes are in learning communities. So I uh, teach alongside an art historian. And then we have a sort of like a student success class where the um, that person who teaches it is also the student's advisor for a year, I think. To be in this program, they have to be entering freshmen. So I have an entire class full of brand spanking new college students. So, uh, you know, it's a, that took a little bit of time to get used to for me because you're used to like people coming up through a developmental sequence. Um, so you have people who know how to, you know, do college um, with people who don't, and so they sort of teach each other. Well, they're all learning how to do college at the same time. So, um, but I love teaching in a learning community. Uh, it just makes everything just so much better. And I love particularly the art history one. So almost everything I do has something to do with that learning community, everything that you know I write about. And so, um, but the students, um, even though they are, full-time students working full-time and traveling between one and two hours one way by public transportation. But uh, yeah, so they are extraordinarily busy, just everything you would possibly imagine from community college students. Okay, so my goals in teaching, what are my goals in first year teaching? To, uh, to help students understand that writing is as much about reading as it is about writing, uh, that if they have trouble understanding the text, it's because that text is hard, not because they're deficient as readers. Uh, The confusion and frustration are part of the reading and writing processes and questions are their academic best friends, Uh, that their interpretations of text are valued and important, 
that they're capable of doing whatever they put their minds to. And often they've been told otherwise. If I can get students to learn any of that, then um, I think that they'll be a little less afraid of failure. They often do come to me just really afraid that they're gonna fail. And so if I can help them understand more about the learning process and just get a victory here and there, then uh, they'll know that they can succeed again. So I just need them to get some victories so that they know that they can do it. And that's, that's really sort of like my goal of what I'm trying to do. And then I have, of course, the things you try to do in your classes. I mean, I want them to learn how to synthesize text and, and develop and organize and, you know, be clear, that kind of thing. So Cheryl, you're, you're talking about the expectations and experiences students have given your institutional context at Kingsborough Community College. You mentioned maybe this underlying fear of failure that students have. How do you talk about failure with students? Or how do you create a space that supports students or that, that really makes them feel comfortable in the writing classroom? Uh, yeah, I think I never talk about failure. I never talk about any of that. I mean, it's, I don't want to even broach the subject. And, um, but on, on the first day of class, I tell them that I hope that they are perpetually confused, right? Because if they're confused that they're learning. And we talk a lot, a lot about how, you know, when they're reading something, I want them to talk about what they don't understand, not what they do. I mean, of course, they're going to talk about that too. But, you know, I want them to focus on what they don't understand. Let's look at that. Because if you don't understand something, that's going to be interesting. And that's where all of the really good ideas come from. So I focus on what they don't understand. We talk a lot about being confused. We talk a lot about being frustrated. Um, and we talk a lot about asking questions that, you know, questions are the thing that you want to ask. And, um, and I do a lot of group work. You know, one of the strategies that I use is just putting them together and going through an exercise where they have to read something, write down their answer, and then read their answer aloud to each other before they can discuss so that they get used to hearing multiple interpretations and understanding that, you know, it's not necessarily a matter of wrong if you read something, right? It's not about right and wrong answers. It's about different interpretations, seeing the world differently, that kind of thing. And so really just getting them comfortable with uncertainty and comfortable with confusion, um, it just sort of happens that they then start to, you know, recognize it's a safe place to just throw your ideas out there. Even if, you know, someone disagrees with you, sometimes that's the best conversation to have. So you're talking about the importance of collaboration and your teaching and research includes peer review and basic writing. You published an article in 2015 titled Basic Writers as Critical Readers, The Art of Online Peer Review. In this article, you start by talking about the complicated history of peer review, how writing teachers see peer review as meaningful and valuable, even though there are some potential drawbacks like the tendency for peers to focus on grammar error and other surface level concerns as opposed to content. Can you talk about your motivation for this research and how teachers teaching basic writing ought to maybe reconsider 
or reimagine peer review or what peer review does? You know, it, it's funny. It's both magnified and it's not magnified. And I, I listened to your podcast with Carolyn, Calhoun Dillahunt, who um, she just brilliantly talked about how the developmental students, they're not, what did she call them? Point, point counters or something like that, where it's like, how many points do I get? That kind of thing. And um, the, the, the developmental students really come in and they're like, okay, I'm here to learn. Just, you know, they soak it up. And so, yes, I think maybe the fear of failure sometimes is more magnified in them because often they failed. I'm doing, as Darren says, the, the scary quotes, right? They failed into your class. Um, and so they're already, you know, there because of that. Um, but they just soak everything up. And it's, it's I started doing peer, I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with peer review. I mean, it's like, I really, 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 really hate it. I, can't tell you how much I loathe it, but um, because I don't think it's effective, or at least it wasn't. And so I started thinking about why I hated it so much. And, and I still did it really more of a just bring your stuff in and put them in groups while you work the room, you know, you do that like down and dirty, you know, like, let's see what you're doing. And so I was using it as sort of like a way to get them to bring a draft in so that I could, you know, and then give them something to do. And, um, but I always tried to give it where it was more meaningful, where they could uh, not focus on the grammar. I mean, it's like some of them think that they know everything anyway. And it's like, but then I started paying attention to them and watching how they weren't really doing their own work. They were more focused on who was grading or who was grading, who was commenting on their paper. And I started realizing that if I could do this anonymously, then they wouldn't know who's marking on their paper and they wouldn't know whose paper they're marking. So if, you know, I'm Cheryl Smith sitting in this classroom and I see that Shane Wood is so smart. He is just so smart. I just really think that he's, you know, just so intelligent. So I have his paper in front of me. I don't need to do anything because I know he's smart, right? Same token, Shane gave me my paper back and I'm like, oh, I have to do everything that he told me to do because it's from Shane. And so I wanted them to be more discerning about the comments that they were getting. And to do that, they couldn't know who they came from. And I wanted them to be more discerning about the comments that they made. And to do that, they couldn't know whose paper they were doing. And I also have a lot of really slow readers. And I say that with great respect because I swear to you, I'm probably the slowest reader in the whole room. But it's, it's I didn't want them to be focused on how long it was taking them to do it. So I put it online and uh, because of that, I had the luxury of time. They had the luxury of time and they had no idea whose paper they were doing. And they could only look at the, the paper as it was um, written to a specific prompt. And so what they're doing, I guess I should say that I, I'm treating it as more of a reading exercise than a writing exercise. I actually don't even really pay attention that much to the kind of feedback they're getting because what I want them to do is like see someone's interpretation of the, the like text I assigned that they're writing about, but also to get better at just reading student work. And so then when they get their comments back to really pay attention to those comments and decide, is this something I wanna do? I don't want them doing anything blindly. And so I want them to get used to, I need to think about this particular thing. Do, am I going to do it? Why am I going to do it? 
or am I not going to do it? And why am I not going to do it? And it just became so much more rich. As soon as I stopped treating it like a writing exercise and started treating it like a reading exercise, game changer, right? Because really what it is, is it's giving them two different ways of critical reading, reading the student text and the reading of the student's interpretation of another text. And that's, that's pretty much what I was writing about. This also makes me think of another thread in your teaching and research, which is critical reading. Can you talk about how you teach reading in first year writing at Kingsborough Community College? And could you share strategies you use to cultivate and foster and center reading in the writing classroom? I, they never lose sight of the fact that my class is as much about reading as it is about writing. It has to be. And we talk about it all the time that you are writing about what you are reading. And, you know, I often tell them you can't outright your reading ability. So we've got to work on, you know, critical reading and uh, not only of the texts of others, but of texts of your own making. And it's really hard to really get them to do all of the things we want them to do. Uh, we want them to read with a focused attention that allows them to negotiate meaning with texts. We want them to understand that all texts, including their own, are open to warranted multiple interpretations. We want them to understand that rereading is key to analyzing all texts. We want them to monitor their thinking as they're reading texts. We want them to trust the value of their own ideas so that they don't feel like they need, they need to parrot someone else's ideas. And we want them to understand that confusion is a necessary part of the process. And so to do that in, in, in an in-person world, I do that interrogating text. It's the exercise where they are just constantly just focusing on the questions, focusing on what confuses them, trying to figure out all the different interpretations that are coming from their group members. Um, but that doesn't translate well into an online world, I discovered. Um, so now I do something kind of similar, um, but I, I'm doing it from one of my colleagues, Matthew Gartner, does like a Google Doc and he puts text in it and he has him respond to it in certain ways. And so I totally ripped off that idea, um, but still sticking with the things that I want them to do, digging in, focusing, rereading, 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 and really focusing on what they don't understand. And then trying to answer it. It's not just enough to answer the question or ask the question. They also have to try to come up with what they think might be a plausible answer or interpretation. I make sure that they always understand that this isn't about right or wrong answers. I do not want them mining texts, trying to figure out what it is I think they, you know, for them to figure out what they think I think they want. That's really hard for them to get out of their system. That there's, you know, I choose texts that don't really have right or wrong answers. Um, they, they can have multiple interpretations. Uh, the art link certainly helps a lot because we look at visuals a lot. The first um, exercise or the first paper that I have is protest art versus propaganda. So they have to find a piece of protest art and determine why it would be effective for the protest and why people would be against it, right? Why people would say that's just mere propaganda in the negative sense of the word. Um, and that gives them, you know, two ways that they have to look at something. And so that visual rhetorics and looking at um, analyzing an image and then using text and trying to talk about analyzing that image. Um, it just really is, you know, pulls everything together. 
And so, um, again, rereading the, the Google doc thing from that I ripped off from Matthew, uh, just so super, super, super easy and useful. And it also lets me know, cause you know, CUNY, the city university of New York, uh, has a policy where uh, students don't have to turn on their cameras. So I teach to myself because no one has their camera on. So I, you know, the zoom, you have it on, you're like looking at yourself and you're like, you know, pretending like you're like having a conversation. And so what happens is sometimes they're at work, sometimes they're not there. And so it gets them actually participating in this. They know that my class is going to be one where they're going to have to do something. And so it gets me, you know, it does, you know, keep their participation and it keeps them reading, 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 and writing about what they're reading all the way through. And then they have access to these documents too, and they can use each other as textual sources in their papers if they so choose. So it's like building all the way through and just showing them the value of writing about reading, because really that's what college is all about. You're writing about what you're learning. You're writing about what your teachers think you should be reading for their classes. So you've written about incorporating multimodal assignments in the writing classroom. What do you think are some of the affordances of embracing multimodality and drawing on a multimodal approach to teaching writing within the larger context of of two-year colleges? And then even more specifically, the affordances of multimodality given your specific geographic context in Brooklyn, New York at Kingsborough Community College. I could talk about this for like hours. Um, so, okay, I'm gonna tell you a little story. In this, in this learning community, uh, one of the assignments that we had to do that came from the student success class uh, was a diversity sort of project. And we'd gone through so many iterations of it where they were just writing an essay or watching that short clip of the woman, um, gosh, I think it was in the seventies who told everybody, if you have blue eyes, you're good. And if you have brown eyes, I don't know if you've seen that. If not, it's terrific. Uh, but anyway, nothing worked. It was just, they hated it. We hated it. And I saw a presentation in, uh, in California from, uh, Amanda Reyes and Ron Farrell, and they were doing something at Dominguez Hills where they were sending their students off onto the campus and they were using Guy Debord's, I think his name is Walk of the Dereed. And as soon as I saw that presentation, I thought, my students live all over New York City, right? So Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island. New York City, there's art everywhere. What if that diversity assignment ended up being go into your neighborhoods and take photos and create this multimodal project, which is what Reyes and Farrell had done, create this multimodal project. And the only rule is that it has to have images, text, which doesn't necessarily have to be written. It could be oral. And, um, and the prompt was, how does the art influence the diversity of the neighborhood? And how does the diversity of the neighborhood influence the art? Didn't know anything about PowerPoint. We all learned it together. Best assignments I've ever seen. There was one student in there, didn't really speak very much. Um, um, and her, we called it the walkabout. Her walkabout was one of the best things I've ever seen. And we did it toward the end of the semester and she did not have a final paper. And I know that because she would sit in front of a blank computer screen when we were in the computer lab. And, um, and she, she ended up turning in a paper that 
was good enough to get a C and she was using sort of like the same rhetorical moves that she had done in the walkabout that she did with this final caper. And so I started thinking about that. I'm like, why are these so good? Why are these so good? The struggling students are surpassing in execution, these multimodal assignments, you know, surpassing the students who had, were doing really well on the traditional assignments. Okay. About a year later, he's still doing the, you know, something like that. But I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, did not do well in traditional school, just, just didn't, but is so super creative. And she ended up going to um, the Fashion Institute of Technology for film studies. And we were talking one day and she said, I love my classes. I can, I can do the projects however I want to do. So struggles out of high school is get, making a 4.0 in, uh, in, at FIT. And it got me thinking, that's it. Community college students sometimes don't do well in traditional school, but they're so creative. This is, this is actually, I think, why. They loved the, the images. They loved doing the music and the musical choices are just make everything. I mean, it's like it, it beautifully done. And just the way that they manipulate PowerPoint and make it work. So um, I do something very similar where I start with the protest art and then I end with they them researching just a single artist who has made an impact on the art world and uh, society as a whole, that kind of thing. And that, so that's my last assignment. The middle assignment is a one-page flyer. It's a one-page flyer getting them ready for that last one. Because one of the hardest things to teach students, and you know this, is getting them to synthesize text, right? You have to use like four or five, you know, articles, whatever, and not have them say article one says this in this paragraph, and then article two says this, right? But getting them to actually understand how those texts talk together. So this one-page flyer, they have to have categories about this artist, like the medium, the impact in the, on the art world, the impact on society as a whole. And they have to use at least three sources in all of these categories and get it onto a one-page flyer. And that sets them up for the narrative of the final project. And um, I, I, did, I did the flyer once, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal final projects. I didn't do it the second time because I thought, you know, am I like, should I be doing this in a composition class, like a one page flyer? And they were not as well executed. Students like to think creatively and they, and doing a one page flyer with images and doing it in whatever way they want it to do sets them up with that synthesis. So those become paragraphs and they can like incorporate all of their sources, incorporate their own voice in there. And it just, it became such a stepping stone. I can't wait to teach it again because I'm adding that flyer back in. I think it's one of the best things I do. It gets them to synthesize, it gets them to develop, it gets them to organize so much better. And it really does come out so incredibly clear and thoughtful that it's, and I, I know it's the multimodal. They love messing with images and sounds and that kind of thing. I wish we could do all of it that way, <laughs> to be honest. Usually, you know, students, the only time that they have to write the kind of essays that they write in school are at school, right? They're never gonna do that anywhere else. And, but they also know that if they just put enough information down, right? They can just keep going on and on and on. Multimodality has them being more thoughtful about what they choose to include. And so that's why I think the assignments are more spot on 
I don't, I don't really grade on language as long as I understand their ideas. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, it's just, did you do the assignment? Did you, did you just follow directions and that kind of thing? And so knowing that I think helps too, that, you know, that pressure is off of you to not have to make it like perfect. And, um, but I just, I can't even begin to tell you how the, how effective they are with fewer words, getting the same points across that they would probably have done in a six or eight page essay. Um, it's just there. I just, I can't say enough about multimodality, especially the two-year college where if I'm right, that the students are more creative, you know, and, um, they're just that creative aspect of it. And they do better when they can be creative. Uh, Pat, Patrick Sullivan talks a lot about creativity in the classroom, um, if anybody's interested in learning more about it. Thanks, Cheryl. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.